You're listening to the Ann Croker Writing Coach Podcast, where I'm sharing my best tips and training skills and strategies to coach writers to improve their craft, pursue publishing, and achieve their writing goals. This is episode 238, Decoding Greatness. Discover the fast track to writing success with Ron Friedman. I am so excited to welcome Ron Friedman to the show. Ron is a social psychologist specializing in human motivation who left academia to become a real-world problem-solver, writer, and entrepreneur. These days, his focus is on helping people succeed faster. Ron's latest book, Decoding Greatness, will be released in June 2021 by Simon & Schuster. His previous book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace, was named a Business Book of the Year by Inc. and translated into seven languages. Ron is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Forbes, and CNN. He has had his work covered by NBC, NPR, The New York Times, Business Insider, Entrepreneur, and other global media. And he is with us today on Ann Croker Writing Coach. So thank you, Ron, for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Uh, And Anna, I've mentioned this to you before, but your listeners should know too, that I am uh, one of you. I I listen to Anne's show all the time and I really enjoy it. I find it inspiring. So thank you for doing what you do. Oh, I love that. I love that you're one of us. You're a writer. I am really looking forward to hearing about your book, Decoding Greatness, but I'm also curious about this intersection of the ideas in the book and your own writing life. So I'm hoping we can get into that. Sure. But people who are listening in may not have heard about your book. I have, but uh, they may not know really what it's about. So go ahead and give us an overview of Decoding Greatness. Sure thing. So the big idea for the book is that the stories we've been told about success are wrong. So most of us have heard two main stories about how success happens. The first is that success or greatness comes from talent, the idea that we're all born with certain inner strengths and that the key to finding your greatness is pursuing a field that allows your inner strengths to shine. The second story is that greatness comes from practice. This is the Malcolm Gladwell paradigm of practice, 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 putting your 10 years, do the hard work, and then eventually you will succeed. But there's a third story about how success and greatness happen, and it's one that people don't often hear about, but it is the path by which so many writers and artists and inventors and entrepreneurs have succeeded, and that is reverse engineering. And by that, I mean finding extraordinary examples and then working backward to figure out how they were achieved. And by doing that, by comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary, we can't help but identify the elements that make extraordinary work succeed and thereby improve our skills. Okay, so how did you even land here? What on earth brought you to this book as the one that you decided to write next? So there are two, two, two elements. This one is that uh, my first book, The Best Place to Work, took over a thousand academic studies and translated them into plain English so that regardless of whether you're a CEO or just someone starting out, I wanted you to have access to the latest science of how top performance happens. And the story behind that is that I was a psychologist and, and decided I was going to go into the corporate world. And so I joined a marketing agency, a polling company. And in those experiences, I came to the conclusion that so many of the insights that we psychologists know are the factors that lead to motivation and creativity and success, we're largely being ignored by most organizations. And it's not because those CEOs or those managers don't care. It's because they don't have time to read academic journal articles. So the point of the best place to work was, let me give it to you and let me show you how to use it by turning everything into actionable steps. 
But there was something missing from that book. And what was missing is that even within the best organizations, there's a range of performance levels. There are people who perform at a very high level and there are people who do not. And so I was curious about what is it that the top performers are doing differently. So in this book, I delved into the biographies of so many people who I consider to be top performers to understand whether there was a pattern to how they were going about it. And indeed, that's how I came across reverse engineering. But the second part of it is that reverse engineering is kind of something I've been doing all along. And it, I talk about it in the second chapter for the book where I had to write my first academic journal article in graduate school. I had no idea how to start. And it was anguish for quite some time. I didn't have access to your podcast, so I didn't know what to do. And so what I ended up, what I ended up doing was I took uh, a writer whose work I really respected, and I read all of his articles after, one after the other, and it, it, eventually I, came, I hit upon a pattern, and I realized, okay, there's a hidden structure within this book, within this, within these articles, and that structure was he would open with a startling fact, and he would transition to the broader implications of the fact. Then he would go into raising a question, almost like a cliffhanger. Um, it's getting into a little into the weeds of how academic journal articles are written, but they were, I was able to walk away with a, with a template of how to write my articles. And so that process was is reverse engineering. And I can tell you that as I was telling my friends, and I've got a lot of friends who are writers or creatives in other fields, whether they be designers or copywriters, et cetera, and I would tell them what I'm working on. And almost invariably, the reaction was, I've been doing that all my life, and I've never read a book about it. I, I I find it fascinating, though, that the top performers that you happen to know, because you're probably acquainted with a lot of these people from your studies, from your work, that they are already doing it. So I wonder why. Like, is that intuitive in some people? And then you're just instructing the rest of us? Uh, that's a great question. And I don't know. I haven't, I haven't done any studies to compare people who've been doing this versus people who haven't. But I just think it's remarkable that people like Malcolm Gladwell, Stephen King, Claude Monet, all these folks who are at the top of their field, that there's a story about uh, um, Van Gogh at the end, how he managed to achieve his success within just 10 years. He's, he was an artist for 10 years. Everyone's heard of Van Gogh. He was an artist for 10 years, had no formal training. How did he do it? By applying the strategies in the book. So uh, I just think it's so interesting because, and I also think it's inspiring because I think so many of us have become persuaded by the four, by the two uh, primary narratives, the narrative of talent versus practice, that either we weren't born with the talent, so greatness is not for us, or we don't have the strength or the the patience to put in ten years of practice, so therefore greatness is not for us for that reason. So, what I hope that this uh, book does for folks is it gives them the tools to not just execute at a higher level, but also allows them to embrace some of those dreams they've abandoned from, from their youth. It's a practical path to explore the possibilities that they maybe not even, didn't even think were theirs to explore. Exactly. Because now they can see, I can unpack this. I can deconstruct it like a kid taking apart the radio to figure out all the different parts and put it back together again. That's kind of what you're saying can be done with our writing. Absolutely. I, it reminds me, uh, I remember... Um, reading about Benjamin Franklin doing this, and he explains it in the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, how he would study a model that he really liked, and then he would he would read it, and then he would put it away, and then he would try, try to reconstruct it, rewrite it in his own words later, and then see how close he got. So was he basically doing that just naturally? 100%. That is one of the pathways. It's copy work. That's one of the ways that you can get into the mindset of someone who is the creator. And can, one of the things that's wonderful about copy work is that it forces you to compare your instinctive inclination against 
the decisions of the artist. And in that process, not only are you seeing what they did differently, but it just opens your eyes to all of these opportunities that you've been overlooking because you're just so used to doing things the way you've been doing them. But that's far from the only way of, of reverse engineering. That's one of the, and in fact, I, I, I try to, I try to go over it so quickly because I feel like everyone's heard of copy work. I didn't want to just uh, regurgitate what everyone's heard. So I went right to the next one, which you can talk about reverse outlining, which if you're not doing, you should be. Uh, reverse outlining is, <laughs> yes. is an incredible, incredible tool. Um, and so reverse outlining, everyone's heard of outlining, right? So when you are writing a, for example, a nonfiction piece, you might outline for yourself through bullet points what is going to go into every paragraph. Reverse outlining is, as I describe it in the book, is, is traditional outlining's sneakier cousin because you can do it to someone else's work, which means you could take, for example, sit down with a, uh, a Malcolm Gladwell piece and then uh, create a bullet point for every, every particular paragraph. And what, what is Gladwell doing in that paragraph? And once you have the, all the bullet points, now you've got a structure. And there are so many things you could do with that structure, with that, with that uh, outline. You can turn it into a template. In other words, you can you can say, okay, he's got a, he opens up with a story from uh, paragraphs one through eight are parts of the story. Then he's got a study from paragraphs nine through sixteen, and then he goes back to the story and he's he's got cliffhangers. Now I see a structure that if I want to recreate, I can. The other thing you can do is you can start um, you can start labeling each of the paragraphs by you know, identifying their emotional valence. Mm. Is it a positive? Do I feel positively reading this? Is it a negative feeling? Do I feel neutral? And th by the end of it, you have a pretty good feel for how to recreate a the Gladwellian formula. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you go out and do this for whoever it is, Stephen King, Malcolm Gladwell, James Patterson. What I am suggesting is that it's a much better way of understanding why their works succeed uh, and, and we can get into and the limitations of copying because we really should be evolving to our own interests and strengths if we want to be successful. But if you're just passively enjoying good writing, then you're not getting as much out of it as you could be. That is so good. And this idea of, um, well, you touched on several things that were interesting, like, for example, um, that feeling, the idea of mapping out the feeling. Well, just to confirm, this is all in the book. Like if they get the book, they're yes, going to this. get the book. Okay. Like, I, I cannot wait. And we're just I, talking I, about the first two chapters, by the way. There's like. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's so, it sounds so rich. I, I've pre-ordered. I haven't seen it yet, but I just cannot wait uh, to share this with people. Uh, far and wide, want to recommend it to, to my listeners. Even sight unseen, I can tell it's great. But you were saying, um, the, you know, breaking it down, making a template, but then you kind of like you were giving that little disclaimer that we shouldn't just, uh, you know, plug, you know, chug and plug, plug and chug, plug and chug and our stuff in there and, and copy exactly what they've done. So tell me the purpose of making a template if I'm not going to just plug my own ideas in, or if I create a template from, like you said, just paragraphs one to four, if I change the topic completely, would it even be recognizable if I just plug my own ideas, my own words into it? There's, there's so much we could talk about here. So the answer, So first of all, let me explain why you don't want to copy someone else's template. The reason you don't want to copy someone else's template is because it succeeded for them because it meshed with their unique abilities. So in, in Decoding Greatness, I reverse engineer the most popular TED Talk of all time. So that's Ken Robinson's talk on creativity. And if you haven't seen it, you'll enjoy it. In it, Robinson makes the case that um, schools beat the creativity out of us. And it's by rewarding us for getting the answers right and by telling us we've done something wrong when we don't get it right. 
And through that process, children abandon their interest in, in creative works. And it's kind of tragic when you think about it. But here's the fascinating thing when you reverse engineer his talk is that what you notice is, and, and so what I do in reverse engineering is I reverse outline his talk. I took the transcript and then I tell you what he's doing in every paragraph. And then I tell you how many words are going into each one and the emotional valence. And I graph it out for you on a, in a picture. But beyond that, he is, I quantified how many facts he presents and how many jokes he tells and all these other various metrics. And what you find when you look at it is that here's the most popular TED Talk of all time. And how many persuasive facts is he sharing? One, a grand total of one fact. Now, if I was writing a TED Talk for the first time, I would just fill it to the brim with different facts to be persuasive. And what he does do a ton of is storytelling. He's giving you anecdote after anecdote, and he's telling you a lot of jokes. So he's got 40 jokes in under 20 minutes. Now, I have a template that I can use by applying Ken Robinson's formula, but would that work for me? I don't think so. I'm not very funny. I can't do 20, min 20 minutes of, of 40 jokes, and my, I don't know that I have the anecdotes to make the, the, the talk compelling. He can do that because he's a professor of education. He's got the standing. You, you don't need facts from him because you know he knows what he's talking about. So his particular formula isn't going to work for me. The other thing is, as soon as a formula is reproduced, it is no longer as fresh as it was the first time. And I, I talk in the book about Twilight, the example of Twilight. When, when Stephanie Meyer came out with Twilight, it was a sensation. And all of a sudden, the young adult market was packed with all of these uh, stories about teenagers in love with vampires and tons of them failed miserably. And it wasn't because they were necessarily bad. It's because audience expectations shifted. So you have to account for that. So it's not just your strengths, uh, but also audience expectations shifting, which is why it's valuable to have the formula. It's valuable to have the template because now you understand what's working, but you also need to evolve it at least a little bit to appear fresh and uh, unique because otherwise you're going to be dismissed as derivative. So you've got this data-driven approach that I've never heard of before when it comes to words and analyzing it. I'm sure people have done it. In fact, I, I interviewed this essayist named Patrice Gopo a couple of years ago, and she, by training, was, I think, a, like a chemical engineer or something. And then she went on to do some master's level, or maybe a PhD at some point. And then she kind of came into writing from, through the back door, as she liked to say. And so... She did what you said. I think there's like this scientific, you're a scientist too. I mean, like there's this little scientific way of looking at the world. And I think most writers, and I don't mean to stereotype too much, but like we're not necessarily word or sequential people, analytical, we're not analytical in general if we're coming from maybe like literary circles or something. So to have somebody like you telling me, look, just count them, count the number of times they use this or, or explore that just to see if you can figure out what they've done. And is there anything transferable into what you might try in your next venture? But then with that, you're saying also, don't just copy. Don't just put in 25 whatevers. Look at what they did and blend that with who you are, your voice, your own stories, your own style. Or you can combine various formulas together. So for example, let's say Ken Robinson doesn't work for you, but Susan Cain's a lot closer. And I, I have a course that I'm... I'm uh, going to be delivering called Blueprints for Greatness. And in that, I analyze Susan Cain and I compare against uh, Angela Duckworth. And what you find is that the emotion that Duckworth in her talk um, does really, uh, communicates really well is curiosity. And the, the one emotion that Susan Cain communicates really well is vulnerability. And so 
maybe vulnerability is your thing, or maybe it's curiosity, but the key is to find the TED Talk that works for you or the book or whatever the case may be that works for your voice and perhaps import the elements that make that unique. Uh, one of the things I also talk about in, in the book is ways of evolving formulas. So in the same way that you can deconstruct to understand what are the formulas that are working, there's also formulas for evolving winning formulas. Uh, and one of the examples is combining elements from nice. different fields. So I talk about, for example, uh, the doors. When we hear light my fire, it sounds really original. In fact, what the doors were doing is they were combining rock and roll with bossa nova and Johann Sebastian Bach. And you can hear all of those elements when you listen to Light My Fire. The same is true for, uh, there's another story I tell about Barack Obama. And Barack Obama, when he was he first entered politics, he got trounced. He lost by a margin of more than two to one. And the reason, if you can believe it, was that he was a terrible speaker. He was used to lecturing students as a law school professor. Voters didn't appreciate being lectured to, and they let him know at the ballot box. And so he, he thought about giving up politics. And until he ended up going into the churches and seeing what pastors were doing and delivering their sermons. And a few years later, he was back, and now he was telling stories during speeches. He was using repetition. He was modulating his tone. He was using pause for effect. And that transformed his performance. And what I think that story illustrates so well is that he didn't find his talent. He didn't go practice for 10 years and then come back. He reverse engineered what was working in another field and then imported it into his own. And we all have the opportunity of doing that, whether it's looking at um, perhaps other genres that we don't write in or looking at television or movies for inspiration and then figuring out what's working here and how do I apply that to my fiction. I really like that push or that nudge to go look at things outside of what you're used to reading, read outside your genre, but even maybe even look outside books to get inspiration. And then could that apply to what we're doing? My sister-in-law, I think, was saying that her boss was sending out their team to different conference uh, conventions that had nothing to do with their field so that they could bring that back purposefully and see if they could apply it to their business. And I think that what's really um, inspiring for me as I'm thinking about it is that it gives us license to just enjoy that guilty pleasure. You know, you don't have to just continuously read about how to become a better writer. You don't have to just continue reading in your genre. Just if you want to go watch that foreign film, go watch that foreign film. If you want to go visit Italy and look for inspiration there, that's fine too, because it's in your unique combination that you will find novelty. And the key, again, is just not to just passively uh, absorb fascinating experiences, but to continuously ask yourself, what's different about this? How, how might this make me better? How do I apply this to my field? You're saying pull that experience, your observations, the things you're hearing, smelling and seeing, and then go deconstruct something that's a model of something you admire, someone you admire. And now you're pulling your personality, your writing voice, and your experiences. And, and then looking at this template and saying, what can I learn and re rework in my own way. Am, am I getting the gist of it here? You know, there's there's so many different opportunities for, for doing this. In terms of the, um, it, the trip to Italy, in the book, I talk about the psychology of what constitutes great taste. And one of the theories about why some people have great taste is that they just have a higher level of sensitivity to the elements that make a work unique. And that is, I think, a learnable skill. And I think it's a radar that we can all 
uh, improve with, with uh, more opportunities at really dissecting what is it, it is that we respond to. And that, that question of what is it that you respond to really, I think, um, plays such an important role in defining greatness because it's not about what is objectively the most successful. It's about what is moving to you, what is resonant to you, and then getting curious about how, what makes this different and then applying some of the tools in the book for reverse engineering and understanding this is what I'm responding to. So for example, in Gladwell, I talk about, there's a chapter about how to write like Malcolm Gladwell. And there's a lot that on the surface is very clear about what differentiates Gladwell from everyone else. He ha- is probably the foremost, um, I don't know if he, intro- I don't think that he introduced this, but I do know that he is someone who popularized the story, study, story, study, structure. And now that pretty much constitutes like most nonfiction right now is how it operates. And I talk about how he got to that formula and he got to that formula because he had to write for the New Yorker. He had just come from the Washington Post. And he talks about in interviews about how in when you're writing for the Washington Post, everything is about compression, trying to get the most information into the fewest number of sentences. But then when you went to the New Yorker, it was about expansion. It was about how do I turn this story into a 10,000 word piece? And he realized he couldn't do it. He didn't know how to do it. He wasn't. He didn't have enough confidence in himself as a writer to pull it off. And so he would interweave the two elements together. And that understanding of how Gladwell got to where he got and a better appreciation of his formula can help you become a better writer because what you realize, it's not just the study, uh, story, study, story, uh, um, interweaving uh, that he's he's doing and that makes him unique, but he's also in the storytelling. Once you get into the reverse outlining, what you realize is there's a lot of negative emotion in his writing. He is trying to make you cry. If you watch his, if you listen to his podcasts, there's a lot of emotion there. Are they necessary for the stories? I don't know if they're necessary, but I do believe he has a radar for stories that are going to pull at your heartstrings, and that's. Just, I think that having that understanding of what makes Gladwell as effective as he is, I think illustrates how you can do that for any writer. You can do that for any writer you love and then get a little bit better. And so you're not just shooting in the dark. Now you have a, a better understanding of what's working for you and I think a, a better GPS for how to, re, re, to, to do that, recreate that yourself. A couple of things that really stood out to me when you're told the Malcolm Gladwell story, which I'm looking forward to digging into when the book comes out. But like you were saying, he kind of just worked with what he already knew how to do. So he did, wasn't that he re- reverse engineered how the New Yorker other writers did it. He just started with himself and it's like, I don't know how to expand, but I do know how to tell stories and I do know how to find stories, yes. whether he knew that consciously or not. And then, and then, right. And so that, is that what I'm hearing then with that part of it? Yeah. And this, this happens to be the path that a lot of creatives go through. So I also tell the story of Amy Winehouse and Mark Ronson. They were trying to recreate Motown and they didn't know how to do it. And they ended up creating something unique, which is Amy Winehouse, Fade to Black and all of the other, or is it Back to Black? I don't remember, but oh, Back to Black, I think. And all of the other uh, sensational songs. And he, as a DJ, he couldn't help but interweaving some of those modern beats in. And because of her personality, she couldn't help but having some of those, including some of those edgy lyrics. And so they took this happy and very formulaic approach to music and they modified it just enough to create something unique. And it was because they couldn't reproduce it. And so sometimes I think that we are so afraid of our 
imperfections. And sometimes that's where the beauty is. I mean, isn't that what we all want to know is that like, even in my shortcomings, I can bring that to this experience. When I started the podcast years ago, I was in a situation where I could not do a long podcast. I just, my life would not allow for that. And uh, so I said, well, nobody else is doing it, but I'm just going to do something short. And so it, it uh, worked within my own constraints. But then I thought, well, you know, writers, I don't want to use up all their time that they would be writing, uh, talking about writing. So how about if I just keep it short, give them a little coaching tip and then close it out and say, you know, go write. And right. And you know, it's fascinating because that imperfection, right? Like you, you, at the time you might've considered it an imperfection, but in reality, like what percentage of your listeners have even made it to this minute of the podcast? I hope you're here guys, but the reality is like, I think like the drop off is like by the minute, it's like a right? So it's depressing to think about. But the, po- the point is, is like your shortcoming was a strength because now it allowed you to produce more podcasts. You were in people's feed, uh, downloading almost every day or wh- when you were starting, I-, I don't know how often you were feeding them, but the point is, is that you actually want to be there every day because people forget once they download it, if it's not in the updated queue, then they forget that they have an episode to listen to. I hope that the listeners are hearing that. I hope that anybody who's watching or listening can really believe that I can bring all of who I am, even the things that I wish were different. And, you know, just take a look at Malcolm Gladwell. He's uh, He's got a lot of quirks and we have become quite charmed by them and buy up his books in droves. I also am a big fan of outlining in advance as opposed to just writing and seeing where it goes. Now, I can appreciate that it can go in lots of places you weren't expecting, but there's no reason why you can't do that at the outlining phase where just have it wherever you want. Yeah. And I, I think that it just makes it so much easier to go and write. So my point is, is that I think that there's value in understanding the things that move you and then being more um, strategic in how you allocate your time in executing it. Okay, so that's brilliant because I, one of the biggest complaints I hear from writers that I work with, clients, time, time. They don't have enough time. Okay, so if we can speed some of this up and be more efficient, then we can get to the creative work that we're trying to do much faster and get to the get to a project that we can ship. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that also that this reverse engineering idea is also one you can apply to yourself. So in the book I talk about, so the first half of the book is all about how do you reverse engineer and how do you evolve formula. The second half of the book is uh, something Ira Glass calls the vision ability gap, which is just because you know what you're trying to execute doesn't mean you're going to do it well. And so it's all about how do I shrink the gap between what I want to achieve by executing some of these formulas I've reverse engineered and evolved um, to, to my ultimate vision? How do I get there? And one of the, um, one, the first strategy is something I call the scoreboard principle. And the scoreboard principle simply means that measurement begets improvement. Anything you measure, you are likely to improve upon. So there are psychological reasons for this. One is that when you have a scoreboard that you can look at, getting a higher score gives you an emotional boost that gives you the motivational push to continue working at it. And so um, if you, for example, are looking to produce more work, having a word count, reporting to your word count every day is going to motivate you to meet your word count. Um, I can tell you I do this when I write it. Even if I have a target, my target is... A thousand words, do I get it? No, usually I don't, but sometimes I do and it feels great. Um, Regardless, I can track my performance and I can see that when I first start writing the book, it's a slog, 400 words a day, 500 words a day, 600. By the end, I'm like 1,200 words a day or sometimes 1,400 words a day. Um, So anything you want to get better at, you can track. And so the reason I'm bringing this up now 
is that by reverse engineering your perfect day, you can start identifying what are the drivers that um, tend to produce better writing. For me, for example, it's the amount of deep sleep I get. So it's not about how many hours I spend in bed. It's about how much deep sleep I get. I, I monitor it on my uh, Apple Watch, and it's amazing how predictive it is. Now now that I know that deep sleep is what's driving better productivity as a writer, I can go back a step and reverse engineer what's causing deep sleep. And I can tell you there are two things that I've identified. One is cardio, a lot of cardio. So if I have a lot of exercise the day before, I will sleep better than, that night and then produce better work. And the other is getting a massage. So if you're able to get a massage, get a massage. Massages do amazing things for the body and will almost always lead to better sleep. Almost always after I get a massage that night, I get a hundred percent sleep score uh, for, for the next day. And that leads to creativity. So for me, I kind of view getting massages as part of my job. <laughs> because, it's almost like this holistic approach to writing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's necessary because if you are not treating your body well, you're just not going to produce at a higher level. Yeah. Yeah. And then just like even the, the, the gamification of, of keeping up with your word count, like, oh, I got it. Tom Wolf um, had this approach where he would have to write a thousand words a day and it didn't matter how long it took him. He was going to produce a thousand words a day and he wouldn't leave until he got a thousand words a day. And sometimes he would get it done in two hours and his workday was over. He would just move on, go get some drinks. And um, I could never do that. But I love that he did that. <laughs> and I think just having that no numerical target is important because it helps you um, optimize for that number. And just by having a target, you're more likely to reach it than someone who doesn't. So good. Yeah, you're almost training yourself what it would take to get there with the nudge, the urge to, to succeed at that. That's really good. Have you ever tried to... Um tried to reverse engineer something and you just couldn't figure it out? Well, there are certain, certainly there are things that uh, I wish I knew more about in order to have more information that I currently do. So I'll give you an example. My wife and I were watching John Oliver last night. And if you guys watch John Oliver on HBO, he's got these really detailed news stories, but they're very funny, but there's also a lot of graphics that go into it. So we were trying, so I was trying to figure out how many departments does this guy have to be able to produce these segments? So he's got to have a researcher. He has to have the writer. There must be a lawyer on the staff to figure out what's legal, what's not legal. There's a PR department. There's an investigative reporting arm. There's the design. There's the comedy. I wonder like, what does John Oliver actually do? other than creating this fabulous engine. So have I been able to reverse engineering? I, I can definitely see the structure. I see the structure. He will start off with something random. Uh, then he will go to his story. And he always lays out, like I think of it as a script. Okay, so tonight we're going to look at three things. One, two, three. He goes and hits on the three things. And then almost, at, almost invariably at the end, he will try to do the, the illegal thing or the shady thing that he's been describing and show you how easy it is to do the thing. And so there is a formula there. I don't quite know enough to reverse engineer it, but I think reverse engineering ultimately is not so much about how did they do it, but how would I do it given what I've learned from their finished piece? That I think is more important than how they did it. Yeah. I mean, it's like taking that growth mindset that Carolyn Dweck talks about and saying that, okay, wait a minute. It's not that oh, I can never do that. It's like, how did they do that? Is that is that that's reframing it, and now going in and then saying, ah, oh, hmm. Yeah, 
And one thing I would just warn everyone is that to not confuse commercial success with quality work, because just because someone is a bestseller, that doesn't mean their work is phenomenal. And and just because the book has never been heard of doesn't mean it is not good. Uh, and, and I just, I've seen it <laughs> like commercial success does not mean that um, it, there are so many things that go into commercial success. Like for example, um, having an in with a certain producer that then gets you the, 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 um, the, the uh, mass audience that then somebody tweets it. I mean, like there are so many different things that have to happen for something to become a commercial success. And um, I just think that that is liberating in a sense, because if you produce extraordinary work for a consistent period of time, eventually, I think, I like to believe you will get there. Um, but don't assume that just because something's a bestseller, that's the thing you need to reverse engineer to learn to become a better writer. Focus on what it is that moves you and feels like, wow, I wish I could have done that. Because then you could take the question of, I wish I could have done that and change it to what can I learn from this and how can I apply it to my work? Yes. And you've said several times, being curious, of course, you know, that's a value of mine. And um, I, that like, if you can enter it with that instead of, ah, there, how did, I want that success. And that's true jealousy when you want what they have versus, huh, how did they do that? And then the, you're letting curiosity drive that. I really love that as your uh, driving force. And the same is true for the success of the people in your life who, you know, it's, it's so easy to just say, I hate that person. I wish, I wish that was me. Um, and, and instead, if you could just ask yourself, huh, I wonder how they achieved that. What can I learn from that? It just changes your attitude towards work that may have been threatening and now it becomes inspiring. Yeah. So, um, okay. I have a couple of questions about writing. What's your favorite writing book? Like one, and this is funny because you just, I guess I shouldn't ask this because you just said you don't have to look at craft books or books about it, but nevertheless, I'm going to ask you, do you have a favorite? I'm sure you get a lot of people telling you the Stephen King book, uh, on writing. It was interesting, but I took more away from Ann Patchett's book on this is a happy marriage. Is that, is that the, mm -hmm. what's called this is a happy marriage? This is the story it's, of a happy marriage. This is a story of a happy marriage and then the getaway car. Yeah, especially. So I, I quote her in this book because her process is, I define it as three stages. One is being inspired by what you're about to write. Two is procrastinating. And then three is producing. Those, that's, that's when the butterfly is up in her head, right? Like above her I, head. That part, that part is in the book, right? I talk about her process. So I, what I loved about that is I remember there, there are so many interesting sections. And, and if you haven't read it, it's a, uh, portions. I mean, it's, it's kind of a memoir where it's like different essays, I think, that she's written in different places. And she talked about how having encountering great books isn't simply about the book being great. It's about the period in your life in which you encounter them. And I think that's so true, where it's kind of like in the, the, book, the right book needs to meet you at the right time in order for it to have an impact on you. And I, I just think there's a ton of insights on great writing there. So I guess that would be my recommendation. Love it. I love it. I, I give that a thumbs up myself too. I really, I quote her all the time. That, that whole moment where you have to, not to spoil it, but yeah, yanking it's that out and actually the, the do it. Glory, the the glory butterfly in my book. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay. How about, oh, this would be really interesting for me. Uh, okay. So I'm a little bit, I have a little tendency with the shiny object syndrome where I'm, I'm like, Ooh, is that a better tool? to store my information or to organize my projects or to take notes for my books. This is a big thing, actually. I am trying to um, find the best place to store knowledge. Like if I'm reading a book and I want to take some 
take, take some notes down, grab a quote. I'm trying to figure out where do I store that and how do I access it and then pull it into my work. So tell me your secrets. I'm a bit, I'm big into Google Docs. And the key, the key though, is organizing the Google Docs. So there are two systems that I use. One is bookmarking on the Chrome. So I've got different directories. And I, um, so for example, uh, I have a directory for words and one is called my word museum. And these are words that I think are impactful. So if I find a word that is resonant for me, I will circle it in a book and I'll put it in my word museum. Uh, and then I'll categorize them by, you know, what, what I'm trying to do. Um, and, um, I, you know, as a writer, I'll collect all kinds of things. This is why I really believe every, the first step to achieving greatness is recognizing it in others and collecting those examples. So, um, I collect words, I collect openings, I collect transitions, I collect conclusions, I collect all kinds of things. And it's all about having access to them easily. So it's not, you can't just have a, like people talk about what is the commonplace book? I don't understand the commonplace yeah, book. Yeah, so it's like a book full. Yeah, yeah. It's like, how am I supposed to access that information? Where am I supposed to find the thing that I'm looking for? It makes no sense to me. So I, I, <laughs> I, it's all about not just collecting, but then also making it accessible. That's the other step that's really crucial. So for me, uh, Google Docs, I know a lot of people talk about, um, I want to say Evernote, but it's not Evernote. What's the, um, what's this the, one? Notion is really popular right now. Yeah. Right? I'm uh, I'm an old man. I Google Docs is fine. Yeah, I love it. I love the simplicity. It's like it's there. It's searchable. And you're, you can access it on your phone too. So, yes. Okay, I feel very affirmed because yeah. that's where I am right now. I think a lot of, a lot of the um, obsession with tools is a form of procrastination. I think you're right. I'll admit it. <laughs> That's, uh, that's me. But uh, well, I don't know if it's procrastination. I think I'm always just looking for the best, like, and maybe a little obsession with uh, efficiency on my part. But I have a friend, like we play racquetball and he had these like very expensive socks. Right. So I was, we were talking about the socks and he, I don't know, like $25 pair of socks. And he was like, they're compression. They're going to, I'm like, the problem is not the socks. <laughs> <laughs> Like that's how it is with us writers. It's like we don't need. It's so true. Maybe there's a tool out there that I don't know enough about to recommend, but I just feel like, you know, if you can get the reverse engineering part, that's going to be a lot better for you than having uh, the 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 right gadget. Yes, yes, it's the idea, it's the organization, it's the actual content in the end. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you're a writer. Do you have any writing advice? And not just, it can be beyond decoding greatness, but I think, you know, your whole book is sort of um, a, a thesis on on how to become a better writer. But do you have any other pieces of advice? I don't know where to start. Um, so I, it's interesting because I'm, I'm now on a podcast tour. And uh, I also, at the same time, am supposed to be writing articles. And I'm finding it really hard because there are different parts of my brain. So I one of the things I've noticed about myself is in the transition from dealing from with client work or, or just speaking to writing, there is invariably a day of transition. And that day of transition is a day of misery. And there it, it involves me just basically standing in front, sitting in front of my computer, trying to get stuff out and convincing myself that I don't know how to write anymore. And then I'll go home I'll take a walk with the dogs. I'll complain to my wife about how I don't know how to write. And then the next day it just pours out. And I just think that I've learned that about myself. And I think we all have these little quirks about us. Maybe that's not a quirk. Maybe everyone has that. 
But the more you do this, the more you realize that getting stuck is part of the process and you become more patient with yourself. And um, this, is a, this is a marathon. I mean, it's just not about like having one good day. And if you could just show up and do the work, and if you do it for enough days in a row, you will have a book. And so the way that I, how I got to writing my first, to my dissertation and how I helped other writers write theirs is that I, you know, if you can just set a goal that is reasonable for you of three paragraphs a day, right? Three paragraphs, it doesn't seem intimidating. Can you three paragraphs a day? Yeah, you can do it, right? If you do that for 30 days in a row, you have a dissertation. So same applies for writing books is if you just give yourself a target goal, have it be reasonable so that you can achieve it uh, a high percentage of the time. And if you aim for consistency, those two things together will get you to the finish line. This is brilliant. You. you are your own genius. Oh, well, you, thank you so much, you, Anne. I, I really appreciate it. And you keep me inspired as I'm writing. So I, I appreciate your work as well. That's great. Well, tell people how they can find out more about you, more about the book, all of that. Yeah. So Decoding Greatness is available at bookstores everywhere. Uh, if you'd like, you can go to decodinggreatnessbook.com where we have some bonuses you can get with your purchase. And um, you can find me at ronfriedmanphd.com where you'll find access to my articles and all kinds of eBooks that you can download and things like that. So, uh, but thank you, Anne. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for being with us today. That's great. Are you ready to reverse engineer your way to writing success? Ron's approach eliminates any sense of mystery to this writing process and helps us all discover the secrets behind how masterful writers pull off their most successful work. And What We Unearth can serve as inspiration as we craft our own blog posts, essays, articles, books, anything we write. I'll have everything about Ron and his book, Decoding Greatness, in the show notes. So if you're listening to this in the car and you can't write it down, no problem. I'll keep it really simple for you. Just go to ancroker.com slash decoding greatness. It'll all be there for you. And I'm Ann Croker, writing coach. Thank you for listening. 